Alright, I'll pray and then we will begin class week number five. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your mercy, your love, your holiness. We ask that you will bless us today with wakeful hearts, wakeful minds, that we can join together with your saints to glorify you, that we can be built up and edified by your word and strengthened by your spirit. We ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. 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 All right, so we began looking at the uh, structure of the Old Covenant covenants, the Old Testament covenants, as being broken down into two groups of three. So you have the um, offices, which is known in church, in, in theology, as the munis triplex. I'll write that down. So you have the munis triplex, and that's Latin for essentially the three offices or the three um, cures, it's been called in, in church history. So munis triplex is uh, prophet, priest, and king. So what we're looking at is how there are actually two sets of these in the Old Testament. So the first three we began to look at, we got through the Adamic and then the Noahic covenant. So you have the and then the Noahic and then the third, which we didn't really get to, which we'll start today, Abrahamic. Now, these covenants obviously have a lot more in them, especially the Abrahamic covenant, has a lot more in it than merely just instituting the office of prophet, for example. So, what um, what our curriculum is stating is organizing it in this way: is that Adam represents, in many other things, represents the first office of priest, because we looked at how. He was set over all mankind as priest to, um, after the fall, to institute and offer sacrifices for their sins. So we have at the Adamic covenant operating as priest. Then Noah, we get the office of king because Noah is commanded to uh, is, excuse, um, execute judgment on those who commit murder. So this is the first time in which God begins to give his laws again to creation and there's an explicit prohibition against murder. And usually what we deem the, the, the people who are in charge of enforcing those types of laws are what we call federal heads or governments or kings. So that, that is where the office of king comes in under the Noahic covenant because we have that Prohibition, and then also that command to judge anyone who commits murder. And then thirdly, and we'll begin here, we have, obviously, prophet. And so what we'll see as we go, we have three more over here, and they follow the same order. Um, so, picking up at the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. So Abraham is obviously an individual who God chose, not because of Abraham's character necessarily, 
or anything like that. And we've talked about that in the first couple classes, that the reason God chose Abraham was out of love. It wasn't out of a conditional sort of, Abraham is a great guy, he's qualified to do this, therefore I'm going to choose him. God loved Abraham and therefore chose him to be his, uh, the, the forerunner, if you will, of his kingdom. So God chose Abraham to build his kingdom through him and to also build his chosen people. And from Abraham forward, uh, this is what's really interesting. From the time of Abraham to the advent of Christ, access to God, access to Yahweh, was only available through the seed of Abraham. So if you wanted to come into the presence of God, if you wanted to have access to God, the, the one true God, you had to access it through the seed of Abraham. And that's what we call the Hebrews, or, or later the Jews, right? So, um, through Abraham, access to God was made possible. And God promised him that he will execute his plans of redemption through his seed. So not only is access to God limited through Abraham and his children and his descendants, but also that God will execute his redemptive plan for mankind through that same family. Uh, and this is the promise that God gives to Abraham in, in particular. So Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3. God says to him, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So this is actually a the beginning of God's statement of redemption, not only for Israel, but also for all mankind. Now, we can get into whether or not that means every individual single person, right? We're not universalists. We don't believe that everyone is possible. Everyone who's ever been born and breathed uh, is saved. But what we do believe is that through Abraham, Christ came, and now in Christ, Gentile and Jew have access to the kingdom, right? There is no difference between male and female, Jew and Greek. So all the world, in a collective sense, has access now to God through Christ if they are united to Christ. And this is the very beginning of that promise, that there will come a Savior through the line of Abraham who will then be a blessing not only to Israel, but to the whole world. So this is where uh, there's uh, quite a bit of typology that's already being seen in the promises that God is making to Abraham. And the way that we would say the office of prophet is introduced in the Abrahamic covenant is, and I think we could do this at this point. We'll, we'll do a, a bit of a, a breakdown here. So, the priest is... The office of priest is necessary for offering sacrifices and atonement for mankind. So if we said, what is the role of the priest? I'm going to erase this eventually. But the priest is one who offers sacrifices on behalf of Israel for their... Um, atonement. 
Okay, so that's the first function. There has to be sacrifices. God says in the Old Testament that there's no covering of sin without the spilling of blood. So the priest, the priestly order, the office of priest is the one who fulfills that role of the actual spilling of the blood to cover the sins of the people. Um, then, obviously, we have the office of king. Well, this one's a little bit more straightforward. The office of king, that's the one who... Oh, hello, Evelyn. Just eyeballing me over there. Um, is the one who institutes and executes also the law of God. So the king is the one who is supposed to... He's not above the law of God. He's the highest office in the land, but he is driven and he's supposed to uphold the law of God, which is essentially ensure that the priestly order is doing its job and also ensure that the prophets are, are able to do what they need to do as well. So the office of king is vitally important because you have to have someone who is overseeing the other offices as well as ensuring national prosperity and things like that. So a king is, we could say, executing the law and will of God. So that is his charge, to execute the will and law of God. You could formulate it in other ways. But that's his purpose. So David, right, King David, his purpose, this is why he's represented as the first king of Israel where Saul isn't. Because Saul failed to execute the law of God and failed to uphold the will of God. He was subverting those things. So David, because he's a, God, a man after God's own heart and actually does obey God in most senses, he is recognized as the first king of Israel. That the monarchy, the Israelite monarchy, begins with David. And then obviously prophet is the last uh, office and a prophet isn't merely someone who foretells the future. Okay? A prophet is someone who is actually being, to use a maybe not the most accurate word, but they are an oracle of God. They are a mouthpiece of God. That is, God is speaking to his nation, to Israel, through this individual person. So they're the person who actually communicates the promises and also the curses that God is placing on Israel. And we read this, if you read First um, uh, and 2 Chronicles, First and 2 Kings, and then books like Ezekiel and things like that, you'll see that not every uh, prophecy that is given to Israel is a positive one. There's, I don't know the breakdown, but I would venture to say that there's probably more curses, prophetic curses, than there are prophetic blessings. Um, so, the prophet's role for Israel is to communicate God's will to the people. So, they are communicating um, essentially, they're communicating on behalf of God. Now, that entails sometimes that entails what we traditionally understand as prophecy as like foretelling the future or giving, you know, this will happen in the future. But that is not always the case. Prophecy in the Old Testament was also bringing down, thus says the Lord, this person should be treated this way. Things like that. And we actually see that 
uh, in particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, and I think it's Leviticus as well, when God is giving the law, he's giving the law through Moses, who's speaking prophetically and instituting what God wants Israel to do, how he wants them to behave. So Abraham, or the Abrahamic covenant, is viewed as the first office of the prophet because this is where... We have a question? Go for it. Yeah. Well, just a comment. So I've heard it another way to define what a prophet is in a more generic sense. And yeah. To tell the truth. Yes. Would, would you agree with that? Yes. So obviously telling the truth. And that goes back to what we were, I think I was talking about last week. So if God is the source of truth, mm -hmm. right, if he is the transcendent source of truth, then a prophet, if he is in fact speaking on behalf of God, then he is by definition speaking the truth. So I would say yes, absolutely. A, a prophet, because the truth is timeless, then sometimes right. that you know that does last the, the test of time. Yes, but the truth is like the primary. Yeah, yeah. I would say if he's if he's prophesying legitimately, he is telling the truth. He is speaking the truth. Yeah, that's one of those yeah philosophical like yeah. Okay, if you if you are a prophet and not one who's deserving to be stoned, then you are by definition speaking the truth. Yeah, you have to. Be. Yeah, um, but the reason Abraham is identified with the office of prophet is because it's through Abraham that we first begin to see the promises, the explicit promises of the future redemption of Israel. Do you understand that? So God is communicating through Abraham. Abraham becomes God's envoy, his uh, um, uh, ambassador. That's the word I'm looking for. Sorry, it's early and I haven't had any coffee. Uh, my brain's a little slow. He becomes God's ambassador, communicating to the world, essentially, and then to his children, on behalf of God, what are the promises that God has given to us, and what will our future actually be. So that's why we would, we would consider him to be the first office of prophet. Okay. Now, moving forward... The second office of priest. The second priestly covenant is the Mosaic covenant. Mosaic. Now obviously, uh, these covenants, as they progress, you can kind of see the pattern as well. Adam's covenant is sort of, not bare bones, but it's very minimal in some sense, that it's not even necessarily identified explicitly as a covenant. As we go forward, we start to see that these are explicitly identified as covenants, and they actually grow in their uh, reach and, and in their complexity, if you will. So the Mosaic Covenant is actually building on these three. So after these three, you now have the three offices of God, the, the manus triplex. You have the three offices of God now introduced. So what happens the rest of the Old Testament is that these three offices are filled out. They're expanded. They're elaborated on. And that's what we have under Moses, is the office of priest then becomes it's much more formal sense. So that's where we have the beginning or the initiation of the Levitical law, the priestly order, things like that. And also we have, for the first time since the fall, 
we have God now returning to dwell with his chosen people. So one of the things that is included, not only does Moses receive the law, the Ten Commandments, not only does he institute the priestly order through Aaron, but he also then receives the instructions to build the tabernacle, which God then dwells with Israel. So we can see how between those three things, we're... You have the king now, is pictured as God, dwelling with Israel. You have the law being received through prophecy, through, through um, Moses. And now you have the priestly order. So in the Mosaic Covenant, you actually have the beginning of this three offices of God beginning to be seen in the life and nation of Israel. And that's important because these three offices are exactly what... Abraham, or it's not Abraham, Adam experienced in the garden with God. So this is all pointing back to, all driving back to restoration, restoring mankind to their original um, position with God, restoring them back to the garden. So that is why we see God now is returning under, under the Mosaic Covenant. He's beginning to return, bring his presence back to mankind. So that's an important note. Let's see, what else do I have on that? Yeah, it's first time since the garden that God is establishing his dwelling with his chosen people. And it's through the priestly order that they're able to enter God's presence. So that's the other important note, is that the priests are the one who are facilitating the atonement for their sins, the covering of their sins, which allows them, which allows the priest on behalf of the people to actually enter God's presence, just as Adam was actually walking and talking with God. So we begin to see that God is telling this story and building this story back to restoring mankind back to the garden. Okay. Now, the second kingly covenant. Any guesses on who, what covenant this is? David. Yep. The Davidic. Gotta be David. Got to be David. All right. Uh, now, King Saul, I already mentioned this, but King Saul was actually the first king of Israel, but he is not recognized as such. He is recognized merely as a transitional figure between these two covenants. So between the wilderness wandering and the Mosaic covenant to the line of kings, to the monarchy in Israel, Saul would be put in here, but there's no Saulic, I don't know what you would call that, Saulic, Saulic covenant, right, Saulic, yeah. There's no covenant that's identified with Saul because he was one who's recognized as usurping the covenants of God, as, as disobeying God. So he is seen as a transitional figure. Now David comes on the scene, and for the first time, what we begin to see is the promises and the prophecies that were given through Abraham regarding the promises of a future redemption of Israel are beginning to be pictured in David. And the writers of the Old Testament present David as a potential second Adam. As a potential second Adam. So throughout this time, everything that's happening is happening under and with this in context. The Adamic 
covenant and then also the curse of Adam. Everything is happening with that in context. And when we get to David, we find that, okay, this figure may very well be this second Adam that has been promised to Abraham who will restore Israel to their proper place with God in the garden. And so David institutes or uh, it stands as that first potential figure. And actually, after David, what you have is the kings are seen as lesser and lesser or worse and worse candidates for the second Adam. So the line of kings, which eventually does lead to Christ, leads to the second Adam. The, the writers of the Old Testament are writing this because they had in mind or they were hoping that David then would lead to directly to, through a direct succession of kings, to the Messiah. So they were hoping that David's son Solomon would be more righteous than him, and then Solomon's sons would be more righteous than him. And so this righteousness would build, and Israel would grow and prosper until the Messiah came, and then lead, uh, lead the world into salvation. That, of course, does not happen, which is the, the pattern we've seen. God makes a covenant with Adam. Adam breaks covenant. God makes a covenant with Noah and mankind, and what happens is mankind ends up breaking that covenant. Thus, we have the Tower of Babel, so on and so forth. Through Abraham, Abraham doesn't break covenant, but his children break covenant, which is why they're led into... Uh, captivity in Egypt. Then obviously Moses leads them out. They enter the wilderness. What happens in the wilderness? They break covenant. God has to restore the covenant. So we see this pattern. Institution of covenant, breaking of covenant. Institution of covenant, breaking of covenant. Solomon is the one who actually breaks the covenant with God by, uh, what does it say? He does the three things that you're explicitly told not to. Do, do, do. Yeah. Um, where is it? He builds an army. Okay. Building an aggressive army, marrying many wives, and then taxing oppressively. And the building of idols was because he had so many wives. He was trying to please his several hundred wives. So he's like, how do I make them happy? Well, I'm going to build temples to their gods. That will appease them. So he does those three things, and those things, those three things together, which are recorded in Deuteronomy 17, those are what cause him then to break the covenant that his father, David, had with God. And then therefore the line of kings is broken. We see that then Israel is divided into the northern and southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is just a real mess the whole entire time. The southern kingdom has a few righteous kings. Hezekiah and Josiah are the main two. Um, but if you read, um, what is it, Second Chronicles 13 or 16, I can't remember. The story of Josiah, it's very interesting because Josiah was a, a righteous king in many regards. He restores Israel back to the covenant and um, back to reading Torah, reading the Old Testament law, reading the law of Moses. And yet uh, he's, he still fails in the end of his life. And God says to him, essentially, even though you've done all these great things, it's too late. Israel is too far gone. The line of kings is too far gone. I have to execute judgment. Despite the fact that you've tried to call Israel back to me, 
too much has gone on. It's too far down the road. So David is seen as the second office or the uh, second example of the office of king being instituted. And here we also have the introdu introduction, introduction, introduction of the temple. So we can see there's a progression of God's coming to dwell with his children, with his chosen people. Moses builds the tabernacle, then we come to the Davidic covenant, and through Solomon we have the temple built in Jerusalem, which is the permanent dwelling place of God. Whereas the tabernacle was, the, the Israelites at that time were semi-nomadic, so the tabernacle could be taken down and moved, right? The temple obviously is not designed to be taken down and moved. So what they're saying there is that we're essentially, Solomon was building and establishing the kingdom of God. He was establishing the central location of the kingdom of God in Jerusalem. So now God's dwelling place becomes even more firm, even more established in the world. And the goal there was that the world would then be drawn to this place where the line of David was ruling. That was the whole purpose of building the temple was that the out, not the whole purpose, but part of the purpose was that the outside world, the foreigners, the Gentiles, would see the prosperity and the blessing of Israel uh, and the presence of the temple, the beauty of the temple, God's presence in the temple, and that they would be drawn to that. That was a central location for them to be drawn to. But obviously the temple falls into disrepair. Um, as I mentioned, uh, Josiah is the one who wrote, renovates the temple and actually then finds the scrolls of Moses. And that's where they had just locked them away for several hundred years. They hadn't even bothered to uh, go into the temple. The temple had just fallen into disrepair. All right. And then the last of the three, second three, is what's known as the Restoration Covenant. This one does not have a uh, particular figure, figure given to it because it spans quite a few figures. The main figures of this covenant are Haggai and Zechariah. So Haggai and Zechariah are the two main figures of this one. And essentially the Restoration Covenant is after the failure of the line of kings, what happens? Israel is conquered by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They are driven into exile. And so what you then have is the prophets and then the minor prophets who are prophesying about the restoration, this is why it's called the restoration, the restoration of Israel. So not only the restoration of Israel from a redemptive sense, from a salvific uh, stance, but also from a national perspective. So they're also looking forward to the restoration of Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. So if you read uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel prophesies not only about the destruction of Jerusalem, but also then the rebuilding and the restoration of Jerusalem. So the minor prophets are the ones who are prophesying and telling of God's he has not abandoned his promises to Abraham. That was a, a, a contention uh, during this period when they were being conquered was, 
you can tell through reading it that there's this sentiment in Israel that God has abandoned us, that God has rejected us completely, that we'll be cut off forever. And the prophets, part of the prophets are like, yeah, we deserve that. That's what, that's what should happen. But God in his graciousness, God in his mercy, will restore us. There will be a remnant that is restored back to Jerusalem, back to Israel, and that will rebuild the temple. And we see that happen. We see the second temple be built. Um, and then from the second temple period forward is what we have, what we call the intertestamental period. So the restoration covenant was in place from the time of the exile to through to the advent of Christ. So it encapsulates also the rebuilding of the temple. So once Israel is conquered, that is when the restoration covenant is instituted by God. His promise is that he will raise up a Messiah who will restore Israel. Uh, that is in place from that time until the advent of Christ. Now, uh, any questions on all of that? No? Okay. So, with all of this in mind, I want to um, go back to the munis triplex. And then also, not reconcile, but, but bring alongside another... another sort of subcategory or, or figure in Christian theology. And that is um, Anselm's satisfaction theory. Has everyone heard of Anselm's satisfaction theory? Now I'm getting one nod and several no's. <laughs> so, uh, Anselm, you know, it's funny, is I, I love him, but I don't remember. Was he like the 11th century? Uh, 12th century. Oh, okay. 12th century. 1100s. <coughs> That's what I, I believe. Yeah. In case you're wondering, the, the 1100s are the 12th century. <laughs> Oddly enough. <laughs> so the 12th century uh, theologian, okay, he came up with his, uh, I think it's uh, in uh, Latin, it's Cure Deus Homo, which is uh, why the God-man, but he also, it's called the Satisfaction Theory. Anselm's Satisfaction Theory. Okay. I'll start with Anselm's Satisfaction Theory, and then we'll see how it helps us understand the Munis Triplex. In, in essence, why do we need these three offices? Why do we need the three offices of God? So Anselm, his, his theory of satisfaction goes essentially like this. You have mankind, <clears throat> and you have God, as two separate entities. Now, God is obviously in control. He's sovereign. And mankind has incurred a debt that they owe to God. So mankind owes God a debt. But mankind is not capable of repaying the debt that they owe to God. Because once they've recurred the debt, and this is the important part, once they have re uh, incurred any debt at all, any future obedience doesn't go to pay off that debt. So we can almost think of this, now I can, I get to think of it like this, in the, in the sense of having a mortgage or a rental payment. If you owe past months, paying your current months don't pay that off. 
you're supposed to pay those anyways. So you need something that can go back and reach back and pay off your past debt. So Anselm said, mankind has incurred this debt through Adam, through the fall. And any subsequent obedience that we render unto God is owed anyway. So we're, not at, we're still not paying off that old debt. How do we pay off that old debt? Well, the only person who, the only, the only thing, the only being that can satisfy the righteous requirements of God is God himself. But God doesn't owe himself anything. God isn't the one who owes the debt. Mankind owes the debt. So you have this dilemma. God is the only one who can pay off the debt, but he doesn't owe it. Mankind owes the debt, but can't pay it off. So this is why his, his satisfaction theory is why the God-man, cure Deus homo. Why did Christ have to become God and man? Because Christ then stands in place as a man. He is then our federal head, our second Adam, our representative. He now, being the representative of mankind, can pay the debt because now he is also God. And so he is capable of satisfying the righteous requirements of God. So this is why Christ, as the second Adam, as the God-man, is necessary, is crucial for paying the debt of mankind. So Christ, the God-man, satisfies the righteous requirements of God by paying our debt that we owe to God. And he does this continually. This is why, as Christians, we are set free in Christ from the law, from the requirements of being obedient to the law as our source of salvation. Christ is the one who was obedient to the law. So when we fail, we're not automatically cut off from the covenant, cut off from God, but rather we have the blood of Christ, the atonement of Christ applied to us. So now we have his obedience, his stamp of obedience, his seal of obedience placed on us. So God is satisfied through Christ and we receive the blessing of that, satis this, that satisfaction. So if we take that in mind, the munis triplex is a fuller understanding of Anselm's satisfaction theory. Because here, you're just talking about it in a sort of legal, um, justified, guilty, not guilty sense. But obviously God's uh, command and God's will is not simply that cut and dry. God isn't only seen as a judge or, or a debtor, a, a debt collector, who's trying to get what he's owed and then move on. What you have here is the munis triplex is actually seen as the three offices of God. So Christ is, is executing prophet, priest, and king. But we have to remember that everything that Christ does and learns and teaches to his disciples, he explicitly says he learns from the Father. So if he's executing the three offices, then we can know that God himself is actually the three offices. God is the first priest. God is the first prophet. God is the first king. He's the prototypal prophet, priest, and king. So what you have is if we go back to what is the role of the priest? The priest is the one who is to give sacrifices on behalf of Israel or on behalf of the chosen, God's chosen people. So the priest atones, offers atonement. 
The king, okay, he rules under God. Christ did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he is ruling on earth, or ruling mankind, by the will or through the will of the Father. And then we obviously have prophet, where Christ now is himself the word of God. So what we find here is not only has Christ satisfied the wrath of God, the righteous requirements of God, from our debt that we owed, the sin debt that we owed, but we also see that he is satisfying the requirements of the priestly order. He's satisfying the requirements of the king, and he's also satisfying the, the office of prophet. So in these three ways, this is a fuller explanation, a fuller view of just how Christ is satisfying his father and the requirements that God has, has instituted. Does that make sense? Those two, the last couple days, I was like, oh my goodness, those work perfect together. Because I had studied this separately, and I had studied this separately, and then I was studying for this class, and I was like, by golly, I don't think anybody's ever put them together. Although they probably have. I'm just... So does anybody have questions on that? You got one? Well, I was just going to say, the Anselm theory reminds me of Lewis, who kind of talks about that, the fact that Jesus has to be God and man in order to pay the debt that humanity owes. Yeah, and I think, I think Lewis got it from Anselm. And I think, I feel like Augustine mentioned something very similar. Um, obviously, Anselm is getting this from Scripture. So we could say it's there in the New Testament. Um, but Anselm is the one who sort of is given the credit of working it out in some kind of like a logical formulaic sense of, of giving a logical argument of how this actually would work. Um, but he's gaining that from Scripture. He's reading Scripture, studying Scripture, and making these connections. Yeah. Any other questions? No? Very good. Well, thank you. That'll do it for today. And uh, we'll pick up next week. So next week, I think we're starting with the uh, Edenic. We're going to look at the in, more in fuller the uh, Edemic covenant. But I don't know.